Hello team and welcome back to the Simply Fit Podcast. Today I bring you some incredible news. I have been working on a secret project for the past three or four months now and I now can tell you that the brand new follow along workout channel is live and here. On this YouTube channel, you're gonna find workouts for fat loss, muscle building, improving your cardio health, flexibility, everything is gonna be on there. You're gonna find body weight workouts, dumbbell workouts, kettlebell and resistance bands workouts, all that you can follow along with. And the best part is that it's completely free. They're also around 10 to 20 minutes long, meaning if you're short of time, you can quickly complete an effective workout or you can combine like two or three of them together and complete like a full 45 to 60 minute workout. New workouts will go live on the channel every Tuesday and Thursday and they're gonna be accompanied by an amazing backdrop, which I'm sure you're all gonna enjoy. So if you wanna find the channel, just search Elliot Hassoon into YouTube and you'll find it very easily. And please subscribe. It makes me very, very happy and it helps the channel grow. And feel free to tell your friends, your family, your pets, whoever you want to share this with and let's work out together. Hello team and welcome to episode 293 of the Simply Fit podcast. In today's episode, I have the pleasure of speaking with Sarah Les King. Sarah is an exercise physiologist and a health coach who specializes in eating disorders and hypothalamic amenorrhea recovery. Whilst these challenges are more public than ever, food freedom, lack of guilt around exercise, and a strong body image are still not things that many of us possess. Sarah's own personal journey with these challenges and background with health and wellness makes her the perfect person to discuss these with today. In this episode, you can expect to learn whether full recovery from eating disorders and HA is even possible how to open up to your partner or family about the challenges you're experiencing, along with whether it's possible to ever have physique-orientated goals if you've gone through any of these challenges. So without further ado, Sarah Liz King. Sarah Liz King, welcome to the show. How are you today? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited for this. It's my pleasure. I've been looking forward to speaking with you. I mentioned that I recorded with Tom recently, which most listeners would have spoken, to, uh, would have listened to by now. And I had a great time listening to the conversation you had with him. And I wasn't planning to come across you, but I am pleased that I did. So, for anyone who else who hasn't come across you yet, can you give us a little bit of context about who you are and what it is that you do? Yes. So, as you said, my name is Sarah. You can find me pretty much everywhere online as. Uh, Sarah Liz King. And I am an exercise physiologist by trade and also a health coach. And I specialize in helping clients recover from eating disorders, disordered eating, compulsive exercise, also exercise avoidance, as well as a condition called hypothalamic amenorrhea. So my main focus work-wise is to help people find their healthy balance with food, fitness, and their, their bodies. Outside of that, I love living a healthy, active lifestyle myself. I live by the beach in beautiful Bondi. I've got a little dog named Henry. So that kind of takes up the the spare hours when I am not working um, and running my own business. So that is what I do. So before I ask the question of where it all came about from in terms of the focus on, we're going to use HA and ED as some acronyms today because me trying to say hypothalamic amenorrhea about 12 times is going to become challenging very quickly. But before that all came about, I wanted to ask a question, exercise avoidance, how do you work with clients on that. It's not a big thing we hear about too much. 
Yeah. So obviously exercise is glorified and some people throughout their experience of, of working out actually sometimes have really negative experiences where they feel like they don't want to re-engage with exercise for a variety of reasons. It could be due to shame or due to feelings of low self-worth or due to maybe being in a smaller body before and now feeling like you're in a different size body that you won't be accepted or wanting to be seen in a gym environment or even, you know, just exercising on your own. So there is a really strong avoidance component for people in recovering, like recovering from eating disorders, just as much as there is a really strong compulsive component. So see the range of everything in between, but really is it, it is about helping people find that middle ground of, you know, moving your body from a place of really helpful intention. So it's adding to not taking away from your overall well-being, whether that means cutting down or adding some joyful, healthy movement back in. And how many people do you find experience that compared to those who become compulsive about exercising once again? Um, it can kind of it can ebb and flow. So some people might have a, a compulsion and, you know, they, they put themselves under so much pressure and do so much. They actually then swing the opposite way and feel like they just avoid exercise altogether because it's got such a negative connotation with their previous experiences. And yeah, So it's probably 50-50. I'd say that I do see more clients with more the compulsive exercise component. And that stems for a variety of reasons, a lot to do with kind of how much we glorify exercise and, you know, say, you know, more is always better, which isn't necessarily the case and can end up being a slippery slope of people kind of running themselves into the ground and really, really burning out mentally or physically. Yeah, I can imagine. And we'll dive into that a little bit deeper in just a moment. Before we do, I want to take a little step back to your story again. You find that a lot of people, especially in the health and fitness and wellness space, they usually choose their area of expertise based on some of the challenges that they also experienced. Is that a similar story for yourself? It is a similar story for me. So I actually graduated from exercise physiology and started my career in corporate health, which was great. I loved it, but I had a history of my own eating disorder that I had recovered from. And during that time of my life, I'd also had like a missing period where no doctor could tell me what was going on. I got misdiagnosed with PCOS. I got told, oh, it's no big deal. Like if you just want to get pregnant, uh, we can help you do that when the time comes or just go on the pill and put a big uh, bandaid over uh, what is a gaping wound because that obviously doesn't fix the problem. So I, once I kind of left my own corporate job, that was my number one instigator of like, okay, I definitely want to go out on my own and I want to work in mental health. I always knew that. Um, And I'd always had this feeling that I wanted to give back to those who are recovering from eating disorders because I had been through that experience and there was no real clear-cut guidelines on what amount of exercise was okay. How am I supposed to know if I'm doing too much or if I can do more? So I really wanted to be that sounding board for a lot of people and ended up helping kind of create these world first guidelines called safe exercise at every stage, which you can now find and download. It's called the C's guidelines. 
So I was in the helping the initial stages of all the research and, and putting that together. And throughout that time, I worked at a private hospital, helping clients in recovery and reforming healthy relationships with exercise as well as in private practice. And that was when I started to share my story about how I had a missing period for 10 years. And through my own kind of exploration and research, stumbled upon hypothalamic amenorrhea. And it, it definitely took me that 10 years to kind of get to this stage of going like, oh my God, this is what I have. And it was through hearing someone else's story that I went, that's me. Like I have that and never got a formal diagnosis, but kind of went to my GP one day, my doctor, and was like, this is what I think I have. And she's like, sounds fairly accurate. And I told her my plan on how to recover. And she was like, I'll be here to support you. Uh, and that was pretty much that. So I, I put my mind to it. And about so not even six months later, I you know got up one day and my cycle returned. And I was like, oh my gosh, my body was never broken. I never had PCOS. Everyone was wrong. And I was like, more people to know about this because it just it was like the, I was like, so many people in the, in the fitness space must be going through the same thing that I am and just not even talking about it. So I was like, well, maybe this is my time to open up, be a little bit vulnerable and see if I have a platform to help others. And, and that's exactly what I've done to date now. It's incredible. I love it when someone's personal endeavor comes from their own personal experience and their personal challenges because they're always the best people to speak with about it you know i always have the conversations with many many people with different topics on this podcast and quite often those who are most passionate about the work they do are those who had some of the yeah the the closest stories with that situation they found themselves in so coming through that into recovery i want to kind of set the tone on what people can maybe expect i'm sure recovery looks very different for each and every person but would you say that you're in a full stage of recovery now do you ever see signs of what you went through coming back or do you think it's once you're done with it it can be fully done with you can completely fully recover and never have any lingering thoughts rules restrictions on your life and i hope that people really hear that quite like authentically because i when i was going through the depths of my own eating disorder and even HA, I was like, maybe this is just my life. Maybe this is it. Maybe I can't get past this. But I can tell you today, I I can't remember the last time I had a thought or really even like a really terrible body image day. I can live my life and food and exercise fit into it in a really easy way without me thinking about it at all. That's beautiful. It's so amazing to hear that. And when it comes to HA and eating disorders, where do you think it mainly stems from? Because we've spoken about the fitness industry and I know that you speak a lot about the fitness industry and what it doesn't necessarily do to help things. But do you think a lot of the challenging stem from here or do you think that they are issues that are very deep initially that then get exacerbated by something like fitness. I feel like those who already have the proclivity to have maybe some disordered eating within their routine, within what's normal to them, they gravitate towards health and fitness. They gravitate gravitate towards kind of more obsessive things as opposed to, is it health and fitness that causes it? Or is it just that those type of people tend to head in that direction, which you think is the case? 
Oh, I think it's it's too difficult to simplify to any one factor. I would love to kind of sit here and say like, oh, it's like diet culture that makes us all fall into this rabbit hole of, you know, exercising to an extreme and eating in a particular way. And look, that has its role and its part in this whole thing. But it really is so variable because, you know, the the main reasons that HA occur and HA doesn't always happen for people that have eating disorders or disordered eating, it can happen quite unintentionally as well. But if we talk about just eating disorders and disordered eating, the reasons why people might fall into that, like I said, are multifactorial. But some of the things are the over-evaluation of weight and shape. So people kind of putting too much focus on what their body means and how much worth they place in it. Another thing that can predispose a person to developing an eating disorder or disordered eating is this perfectionist kind of mentality. So having this type A, always striving to be the best at everything and look, pushing yourself can be really positive in certain areas of your life, but not all areas. Other things that can co-occur and sometimes we kind of go, is it the chicken or the egg? Is depression and anxiety? So sometimes when life seems so chaotic or we're dealing with another mental health issue, if we feel we can control one other area, it feels like we can manage a little bit better. And and sometimes eating disorders develop for, for very valid reasons. And I always say that a person was doing the best they could at the time with the tools that they had available to them. And for some people that was the eating disorder or disordered eating, the problem is over time it becomes a maladaptive coping strategy and it doesn't serve you and it impedes other areas of your life. And that's where it becomes really difficult to break free of it because it can function so effectively for at least a short period of time for a person, which is why getting out of it can sometimes take a really long time. Yeah, it was very interesting. I had a conversation with you and a guest on your own podcast where you said that fitness has kind of taken over, whereas before those with maybe eating disorders were the ones who were very obviously thin, but that's not the image that those are striving for now, it's actually being a more muscular shape, which on the surface, a lot of people would have looked to those thin people in the past and been able to see that it could have looked pretty unhealthy. Whereas now someone sees someone who's thin, but they've got muscle and they are, you know, almost praised and always celebrated in the fitness community as being the picture of health, for example. So it's interesting that it's taken that change. Can you explain a little bit more about that, about how the the, the image essentially that most women and men are striving for has changed across the years and it's actually making us maybe a little less it's making it a little less apparent in terms of when people actually have problems or not. Yeah. And, and look, you're, you're not wrong. The quote unquote ideal body type is forever changing in the eyes of society. And that's why it can be so time consuming to try and always chase whatever that quote unquote ideal is. And you'll never, ever get there because it's a, you know, it's, it's always <laughs> It'll change constant. by the time you do. <laughs> yeah. But I think essentially, even though the body type has changed, it's it's still quite similar. So we're still prioritizing, whereas before in the 90s, we would have had this very waif kind of ideal body type. Now it's this thin muscular ideal. And, you know, regardless of what that ideal is, it's the messages that we attach to it that become really problematic, which is 
if you achieve this body type, then you'll be happy. Or if you achieve this body type, then you'll be accepted and worthy and more successful. And all of those messages are the things that people really cling onto because society reinforces it. And there is so much stigma surrounding being in a diverse body type. So a type that doesn't really fit that mold. And if you're already a person struggling with low self-esteem, low self-worth, looking for an avenue to quote unquote, boost yourself up, it's a very easy avenue to go down. And by no means is, you know, having strength goals or having body composition goals, a bad thing. It becomes a bad thing or a tricky situation when you place all your balls in that bucket and you're not really spending any time or energy or effort kind of cultivating healthy relationships and, you know, prioritizing your career or your study. If everything and every moment of every day is always about chasing this ideal or, you know, a significant majority, what happens when that bucket tips over, you know, where do you place your self-worth and your self-esteem? And that's where it can be really problematic seeing or chasing these body ideals. Number one, because obviously, you know, the needle's always moving in a different direction, but number two, it really undervalues who you are as a person and kind of placing your worth in a variety of different areas of your life that make up who you are. Absolutely. That's super curious to see. And it's interesting that it can be almost camouflaged by just going to the gym and eating well, whereas before it might have not been going to the gym. But like I said, it's probably not too far from where it was. It's just slowly transformed into what we see it is today. So you mentioned that you were misdiagnosed many times by doctors. And when you finally were able to diagnose yourself accurately, a doctor just said, hey, we'll support you, but we're not really going to take any responsibility for not even being able to find the challenge in the first place. If anyone is kind of experiencing maybe some of the things that you felt you were back 10 years ago or so, what the type of things should they be looking out for when it comes to both HA and EDs? So let's start with eating disorders. And within this, you can kind of uh, also place kind of worries about exercise. So like I said before, if you have this over-evaluation of weight and shape, so you feel like you place a lot of emphasis and your own self-worth on how you look, or if you have an intense fear of weight gain, or you feel out of control around food, so therefore you have to have lots of rules and regulations around food. Those are all signs that things could be not so good. The biggest sign is if you feel like you're struggling with your relationship with food, if you're even mildly questioning whether you have an unhealthy relationship with food, then that is reason enough to go seek help and advice. You'll often see, you know, you can kind of think of those quizzes online or those screening tools like, do I have a problem? Do I need to seek extra advice for my relationship with food or exercise or my body? If you're even going towards that page, the answer is yes. You need to kind of go explore that avenue with someone, whether that be a therapist, your doctor, a coach that is well qualified in those particular areas, a dietitian, an exercise physiologist. You need to go see someone for professional help. Um, obviously, the physical symptoms that can come alongside of what is a mental health issue are also really complicated and can be quite life threatening. Being malnourished is not 
the way that the body performs and functions at its best. And there are life-threatening complications as a result of that. So it's not something that you kind of just brush off and take lightly. It's a really serious issue that you need to get into. And I think that the main thing to remember is this is a mental health issue that has physical health complications. Nobody wakes up one day and just decides to have an eating disorder because they are, you know, a terrible thing to go through. In terms of hypothalamic amenorrhea, this can happen for a variety of different reasons. And I think one of the really unhelpful things is it's most often been classified as something that only affects people in really small bodies, which is not the case. You can get HA at any body size. It is a condition that typically happens because it, well, for three main reasons, a person is underfueling, that may be intentionally or unintentionally, overtraining, and they're experiencing significant stress and or they're experiencing significant stress. And that could be physical stress, i.e. too much exercise, or it could be psychological stress. And when you have HA, there are some kind of signs and symptoms that you can look out for, both physical, psychological, as well as behavioral. So physical, the obvious one is missing period. You're not having a menstrual cycle. You're not ovulating. You might also experience things like feeling cold all the time where everyone else is really warm. You might have to you know, urinate more frequently, and that has to do with your low estrogen levels. Other things you can't see, like your bone health is impacted, your heart health is impacted because estrogen is protective against those things. Psychologically, it might be that you are kind of experiencing things similarly to what you would have if you were having disordered eating. So preoccupation with food, you're thinking about food all the time because your body is not nourished enough. It's given up on making hunger hormones because you're not listening to them as accurately as you should be. Fluctuations in mood, low libido, all of those kinds of things, and then behavioral. And this might be more things that you know others might notice as well as yourself. So saying no to social situations where food is around and you know, prioritizing exercise and eating specific ways or specific things instead of joining in on social occasions. All of those things can kind of give you clues like, hey, maybe my relationship with food and exercise is a bit warped. And maybe these are the things that are leading my body to feel unsafe and therefore not produce a regular healthy menstrual cycle. A person can also have HA and have very irregular cycles. We tend to classify that is like quote unquote menstrual disturbances, but it still kind of uh, happens for the same reason, which is this uh, low energy availability that happens from under eating and overtraining. So there's some pretty clear signs to look out for. But what I find interesting is that I would say a fair amount of us, and I would say almost a worrying amount of us experience, I would categorize it as at least disordered eating, maybe not to the stage in which someone has a full-blown eating disorder. What are the differences between those? When do you know you've kind of crossed that path? Because I would say that a lot of people listening, and especially maybe if they are into fitness, they're into improving their body composition, there might be a preoccupation with food, there might be a little bit of you know a, a percentage of obsession around training. How do we know when it's kind of taking a ever turn into a dark and nasty place? Yeah, such a good question. Um, so eating disorders and disordered eating run on a spectrum. So you can kind of think of it as eating disorders, let's say on the far left side, disordered eating on the right hand side. And a person can kind of fit anywhere in amongst that. People that kind of believe in this transdiagnostic model of eating disorders and disordered eating really kind of are aware that it doesn't matter where you sit on that spectrum. What happens is how it makes you feel. So 
the not the amount of food that you're eating necessarily. Yes, that is one thing. But the amount of time, energy, effort, and headspace, all of this is taking up in your life, right? You should be a person that is able to go to the gym, but like if you miss a day, it doesn't really cause you any stress or anxiety. You don't feel guilty or lazy. Whereas a person experiencing disordered eating or exercise might feel a lot of those feelings when they have to miss a gym session. Uh, Similarly, like a person may feel like they want to eat a certain way to prioritize their, their fitness goals. And that is fine, but you know, they should feel comfortable diverting away from that to engage in social situations or to eat spontaneously with their loved ones and feel like that is completely normal and not something, again, that they feel lazy for, ashamed about, guilty about, or the fact that they need to like compensate significantly for those normal everyday occurrences that happen because they have this awareness that really it's the balance over time that is most important. And health isn't just about what you're eating or how much exercise you do. It actually encapsulates so much more. So that that line between, you know, what we see as dedication and what we see as disordered is a very fine line to walk. And it, you really only get the sense of what might be happening for a person when you dive deep and ask them, well, what are your intentions behind what you're doing here? What are the reasons and the motivations for why you want to eat that way? Are you nervous anything is going to happen if you if if that isn't available to you? And that can often give us the best clues as to where a person's mindset is at. Would you say if someone's reasons are down to things that they can't really maybe quantify so much, they can't say or give us a very clear reason, or if it's not down to a specific sport or something along those lines of those kind of the things we'd look out for if someone gives an answer that might not be, I don't want to say the right answer, but more an answer that's congruent with what they actually want to achieve? Yeah, you'll often get people that, uh, I guess, tell you what you want to hear in a way or tell themselves what they want to hear in a way because they they don't want someone to kind of question their values or their reasoning. But the thing is, if you're a person that has really solid intuition about what might be happening, especially if you're close to that person or you see that person on a regular basis, you know, don't judge them. Just be available to be open to them and have these conversations often. Sometimes if you're really thinking, hey, maybe a person's struggling and they're just lying to themselves and they're lying to me a little bit because they don't want to actually own up to what might be happening. If you're a person that struggled at any time with anything, sometimes being the vulnerable the vulnerable one first and actually going, you know, I struggled with X, Y, and Z. And I was so glad that I kind of moved through that part of me, that part of my life. Then they can kind of be like, oh, like that person's not going to judge me if ever I decide to open up. You can't force a person to admit anything, but you can be that person that goes, hey, I'm always here if you want to chat. I'm never going to push things, but um, I just want you to be happy and healthy. And if you're not feeling that way, you can always talk to me. Yeah, that beautifully leads me on to my next question because of eating disorders are something that are typically, it's typically a condition that's experienced in private, right? It's not something that a lot of people will talk about. If you've got other conditions, which are maybe a little more, let's say, commonly 
diagnosed because of, I think an eating disorder is very common, but if someone is told they've got high or low blood pressure or something along those lines, it's very easy for someone to say that to someone. Whereas an eating disorder is, like I said, a condition that seems to be dealt with in private. And that probably adds to the pressure of it or it probably makes the condition somewhat even worse and exacerbates the problems that already exist. So I'm wondering if someone wants to start opening up to maybe their partner, for example, or close family members, how can they start to do that if they're not getting the invitation from the other person or maybe they're hiding it so well that they don't even know? Maybe we can start with partners first. I think that's going to be a different story to telling your family, for example. Yeah. So obviously your partner, you've built that line of communication already. And like you said, it's so much easier to talk about something that people can visibly see. If you have a broken leg, a broken arm, even stubbed your toe, People can see the pain. It's easier to talk about the pain. There's no stigma around needing to rest or do things differently or take time off the gym or whatever it might be. With any mental health condition, it is something that you can't tangibly physically see. And that is the case for eating disorders. You can't tell that someone has one simply by looking at them. So again, I think a lot of people have intuition, but if you know a person is keeping it very, very well hidden and is getting to the point where they feel like they need to tell someone, I think the first thing is just finding a time or an environment where you feel comfortable and safe to open up is the first thing. Really getting clear about what you're comfortable sharing or what it is that you're struggling with, maybe even writing it down if you feel like you might get really upset so that you have kind of something to come back to. And setting the ground rules, kind of saying like, you know, this is what I'm comfortable sharing right now. I know I need help. With a partner, it's really important because obviously any partner wants to take a person's pain away and and care for them and solve the problem. You have to be really aware that, you know, that's not why you're there. You're there to listen. You're there to provide support. You're there to encourage them to seek help and maybe kind of assist them in getting that if they want to, but you're, you're not there to kind of pry and be the one to always solve their issues. It's your job to be their support network. And telling someone is incredibly daunting, but also it is the biggest and best first step that you can make in moving away from the eating disorder. Because the more that you voice what is happening for you, the less power that part has over you. Because eating disorders thrive in isolation, the more that you make them known and visible to other people, the less chance they have to stick around long-term. I was very vocal about mine. I kind of, I shared this ages ago, but it was like episode two or something on my podcast that I kind of fell into an eating disorder. I had disordered eating for a while and kind of like really got stuck into the gym, but I, I developed a true eating disorder after doing this like fitness modeling competition as part of a bodybuilding competition. And I did the one show and I was like, great. You know, my whole premise around it was highly toxic. I was like, if I have a medal, people will think I'm a great personal trainer and they'll definitely want to work with me. But that was kind of, that was kind of the way the industry was back then. It was like your business is your, you know, your body is your business card. And I I definitely fell into that trap. And after that first competition, I never really allowed myself to go back to eating normally and regularly. Like I just kept this really strict regime of how I needed to train and how I needed to eat. And I was like, well, I'm just going to roll on to this next show in three months time. And I remember being like two weeks out from this show and just a big hot mess and made the decision to not do the competition. And 
instead open up to the people around me that I was struggling and I needed help. And I remember going to that show because I still had some friends slash acquaintances. I would really just call them acquaintances, really, doing the show and I was there to support them. And I remember a person came up to me and he said, he's like, oh my God, you look amazing. Like, why aren't you competing today? And I was like, I am so unwell. Like I just looked him straight in the eyes and I was like, I'm so unwell. Like I am having a terrible time with food and I'm pretty sure I have like a full-blown eating disorder. And he was like, he did, he had no idea what to say. And I was like, so I'm not doing the show. In fact, I've got a whole pile of snacks in my bag over there that I need to eat throughout the day because I started seeing a dietitian and it felt awful. It felt really terrible to have had what I thought was a quote unquote healthy endeavor kind of turn and spiral on me into something where I no longer had any control at all. Mm, yeah, I completed in 2016. And if you want to see the insight into how bad and how disordered people's relationships are with food, you just need to go backstage at a bodybuilding competition or just to hang around. And it's it's quite obvious. And obviously there does require certain changes to your nutrition for any type of sport. But I think that that one takes it to the limits just due to the fact that you are stripping down your body to the very, very leanest you possibly can. And all of it is predicated on what's sort of very curious is when it comes to most sport, it's about fueling yourself up for the big game day. Whereas bodybuilding is literally the opposite of that. It's like, how can I feel the worst I possibly can? And then I'm ready to compete where it's, I can't see that happening in many other sports. And that's what kind of was a light bulb moment for me. I was like, why are we going into quote unquote game day undernourished, like dizzy and all these type of things you experience, whereas every other sport is fueling themselves up for the day. That's where the disconnect began for me. Yeah, I agree. You are your weakest, most dehydrated version of yourself when you step on stage. And it is, it's, it's awful. It's a terrible feeling. So yeah, after that, I was like, this is not a healthy place for me to be, but you know, the road back to being my happy, healthy, fully recovered self took years. Yeah. And I think that that just goes to show that the environment is incredibly important as well. And it's great that you took yourself out of such a unhealthy environment from that perspective. And another thing you just mentioned there is that you had a bunch of snacks in your bag ready to eat. And I can't imagine that would have been easy. And I know that you've mentioned in other podcasts before, like putting back on weight is definitely a challenging thing. And I can also imagine that not only would have there been guilt in terms of putting body fat on your body, but there probably would have been food guilt as well, which I think a lot of us experience. Can you go through some of the ways in which we can start to navigate the guilt we feel around food? Because I feel like just about more or less anyone who I've met has had some level of this in their life. So I'm curious to see what you had to say in terms of how we can overcome that. Yeah. And look, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. I think going through a process of having a better relationship with food. And if, you know, weight restoration is part of that is incredibly challenging. We live in a, an environment and in a world that feeds us constant messages of needing to avoid certain foods or, you know, be very cautious around how we eat certain foods and labeling some foods as good and healthy or others as bad and unhealthy. And that's where we often fall into this rabbit hole of feeling so confused about what to eat. And then even when we do give ourselves permission to have whatever the thing is we might've previously avoided, it doesn't automatically make all those beliefs and thoughts and uh, like 
influences from diet culture go away. So the first thing that I would say is remind yourself that the guilt that you're experiencing is evidence that you're actually moving towards a value system that sees all foods as being able to fit into your diet. The reason that you're experiencing that guilt isn't because you've done something morally or ethically wrong, which is why we experience guilt as humans normally, but it's because you're breaking a rule. You're breaking away from an unrealistic standard or expectation that you've created around food or that society has created around that food. And you're feeling the crappy feelings as a result, but nothing bad is going to happen to you from eating that food. The world will still keep turning. I mean, unless you're allergic to it, please don't eat foods that you're allergic to. That's a different thing. The world will still keep turning and it will take a long time and multiple exposures to a variety of different foods for you to come and create your own new belief systems that actually all foods can fit. And that's not to say that all foods are nutritionally the same. They're not. Broccoli is not the same as chocolate or chocolate cake. However, morally, they are all the same. And that is what we're trying to get people towards is seeing foods as morally equal so that when they consume that particular food, they are not placing the same judgment that they would place on the food onto themselves. It's really fascinating. I was just having a thought as you were saying that in regards to so many of us are going through this and it seems like such a huge and widespread and not necessarily a complex, but in many ways, a complex problem to have. How long do you think that this can go on for? Is this something we're going to experience for centuries to come? Or do you think that that's going to be a way in which we can really you know, put the flag down and just say, well, actually, this was the moment we all became, we all were able to overcome our challenges with food? Or do you think this is something that's always going to exist? I definitely seeing people having issues with their food, their body, even exercise for a really long time. Even if we look back through history, you know, eating disorders were actually still present in times where we didn't have social media. And, you know, even when body types and this preferred body type was very different and more voluptuous, it is something that we are going to have to deal with to some extent. The degree to which it is problematic will kind of ebb and flow as society ebbs and flows with our belief system. Mm, yeah, it's very curious. I was just thinking, you know, it's, I usually ask when it comes to something like obesity and I speak to other health professionals, I'm like, do you see a long-term solution? Do you see genuine progress being made? And quite often the answer is no. You know, when you're involved in the industry, you see a lot of progress with the individuals that you work with. But sometimes you think, well, it's just a drop in the ocean. It's a very significant drop in the ocean, but it is just a drop in the ocean when it looks like, you know, the 8 billion or so people we have on this earth as well. So coming back to what you mentioned regarding competing, that's probably quite a big physical goal that not a huge amount of people will have, let's say. A lot of the people who will be listening today will have some body composition goals. Maybe it's to get in shape for their wedding, get in shape for the beach, for example. Can you tell me if it's a possibility that we can hold physique-orientated goals while still overcoming disordered eating? Or if we've gone through recovery, maybe the position you are in now, is it possible for you to say, well, actually, I want to tighten up a little bit for this event that I have, for example? Yeah, look, I don't think it is possible to heal your relationship with food while still trying to micromanage your body to some extent. And you know, having body composition goals is, if we kind of strip it back, micromanaging the way that your body 
looks. Once you have healed your relationship with food, I am, and you know, recovered from HA or your eating disorder. I'm also very hesitant for a person to jump straight back in and go like, yeah, now I want to like change X, Y, and Z. I think it can be something that happens as a side effect of you getting back in touch with some of the goals that are really value aligned with you. So I want to get stronger or I really miss doing X sport and I would love to work back up to doing it. And understanding the kind of nutrition that you need to support those goals in a really healthy way. If your body composition happens to change as a result of that, especially after that first year of recovery, that is so fine. I think removing the expectation and and kind of really kind of zoning back in on numbers you don't want to do that straight away. You really want to kind of go like, okay, let me create some goals that's going to fulfill me in a variety of different ways and not just focus on my body. Yeah. I think it's probably very tempting to dive back in too soon. Do you find that that's the case with a lot of people? Do you think maybe there's that, oh, I'm recovered now, but then you know the signs from before start to rear what, yeah, what they were doing before? It definitely happens when a person has that short-term mindset, especially I see it with HA recovery. Like I'll just do these things and I'll get my period back and then I'll go back to what I was doing before only to fall back down the same rabbit hole. And a similar thing can occur with an eating disorder as well, which is why it's really helpful to continue that therapeutic coaching or work that you do, even after you felt like you've kind of ticked all of your recovery boxes because it really is allowing your brain to catch up with the changes that have happened to your body so that you feel, you know, really strong and resilient against bad body image days and, you know, the influences from the external world of dieting and all of that kind of stuff. If you keep going and keep making sure that you've got that resilience, you're less likely to fall back into those disordered habits. But there are people that you know, relapse. It's just about working with someone who can help you prevent that. So, you know, we do relapse prevention planning because if you don't know your red flags, how are you going to help yourself when things start to kind of slide a little? Yeah. And I know that you won't be able to give me a black and white answer here, but what would you say the typical timeframe of recovery is for someone? Maybe we can use yourself as an example. How long would you say it took you to go from really identifying your challenge to fully being recovered? Oh, years. It took me years and it took me a lot of attempts and fails and getting back up again and not giving up to get to full recovery. And it wasn't linear. It was messy and I needed breaks in between. And that was so fine. And to anyone that is currently experiencing this journey, it takes as long as it takes. But the most important thing is you've decided to put an expiry date on it. And that decision in itself is the most powerful one you'll ever make. I couldn't agree more. I'm glad you made that statement as well. I think it sets people up with realistic expectations of what they're set to experience. And ultimately, if we go in with a mindset that this is just going to be done within months, then we might be either disappointed or like you mentioned, like there was many setbacks and there were many, many tries and errors. And if we go in with the understanding that it might be all solved in a year and it doesn't work out like that, it's just going to bring us a whole host of other problems, I should imagine. So Sarah, what impact do you want to leave on the health and wellness industry? 
the impact that I want to make, well, I'm on a mission to help everyone have that better relationship with food, exercise, and their body. It is my hope to prevent people from falling into the river that is eating disorders and disordered eating down the track. We're still figuring out the best way to do that. But uh, in the meantime, I hope to help people reconnect with the big, beautiful life that they deserve and that food, exercise, and kind of health take up part of that and not all of that. Beautiful answer. And where's the best place for people to find you if they want to follow the work that you do? I am most active on Instagram. So you can find me at Sarah Liz King. My website is the same, sarahlizking.com. Thank you so much for being here, Sarah. This has been a super valuable conversation. Thank you so much for having me. And that was the Simply Fit Podcast. I hope you gained a huge amount of value from today's episode. I feel inspired to improve your health and well-being. Be sure to search for Simply Fit in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from. And go ahead and subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. Also, if you like the episode, please don't forget to give it a five-star rating. I'd love to hear your feedback or any questions you have. So reach out to me on social media. You'll find me on Facebook and Instagram at Elliot Hassoun. Thank you so much for listening. And I look forward to talking with you all on the next one.